The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Find out more about the network and other amazing Alberta-made podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornoyer. I'm Ryan Hasman. I'm Jamil Giovanni. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're also joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart, and we're recording this episode on October 28th, 2018. This episode, we're going to talk about political action committees and the Motor Dealers Association's donations to the pro-UCP Shaping Alberta's Future PAC, the Alberta NDP convention, which was held this weekend at Edmonton, and some of the latest political gossip and nomination news. But first, we'd like to welcome... Jamil Giovanni to the podcast. Welcome, Jamil. Thanks, Dave. So, Jamil, what brings you to uh, what brings you to Alberta today? Well, I'm in the middle of a project called the Road Home, where I'm traveling from Vancouver to Halifax and hitting a lot of the big cities in between, trying to understand what the challenges facing youth across Canada are and what's being done to address those challenges at a local level. Why don't you take a couple minutes, maybe talk about yourself um i'm holding a copy of your book here which i guess our audience won't see because we're a audio only podcast for now <laughs> um but you know you're someone that we leanne and i have been following for a little while so just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing yeah well so i'm a lawyer by training and by background um i'm uh, 31 years old finished law school a few years ago and since then i've been doing a lot of community work in toronto just law school just a little old school. <laughs> yeah, well, I went to Yale for a long time. Oh, school, yes. Yale. Okay, yeah. I've heard of it. Yeah. Um, I think I've heard of Yale. <laughs> it's no U of A. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so, yeah, and since I've graduated, I've done a lot of work on uh, police reform, um, economic development in uh, disadvantaged neighborhoods, uh, youth mentorship, um, various projects that I think, uh, you know, when you're doing this work as a practitioner, you don't always connect the dots into some sort of cohesive worldview often. And so earlier this year, I wrote a book uh, that was published by HarperCollins called Why Young Men. And it is, I guess, the first chance I've had to reflect on the work I've done and also the experiences I had growing up in suburban Toronto and studying at places like Yale and research I've done uh, since teaching at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University on the experiences of young men who grew up like me, feeling resentful of their countries, disconnected from their countries, feeling isolated, unwelcomed, uh, partially because of racial and religious differences, but also because of uh, economic struggles that I think a lot of people relate to. And so what I try to do in my work is articulate solutions that I think not just would be beneficial to young men and young people generally who experienced some of the things I did growing up, but also try to show how some of those quiet, everyday, mundane experiences that don't you know, get on our radar uh, lead to some of the big, explosive kind of catastrophes that do make our news cycles, right? So terrorism, gang violence, um, extremism of various kinds, the kind of hateful ideologies that, I mean, seemingly are in the news every week uh, at this point. I think they're rooted in a lot of the, the the exclusion and isolation that I experienced and that I write about. And I try to show people that, that, you know, the young people who you might read about or hear about um, for committing violence actually are a lot more kind of human and normal uh, and, and, and a lot of what inspires them to become 
I guess, violent or antisocial or destructive people are rooted in emotions that I think everyone relates to in some way. I think that's the task that I try to take on as a, as a lawyer and a writer and a communicator, I suppose. And yeah, I, I, I'm essentially traveling the country trying to spread that message and also learn from people who I think are trying to accomplish similar things in their own ways. How, how have we, how have we failed youth as a society? Like forget about them being disengaged from things like politics they don't have other outlets so they're some of them become violent or or they misdirect energy what can we do to fix it yeah well a lot of the problems that we deal with in the in my work i think are rooted at home right so i think in a lot of cases we are not the best parents that we could be we're not very involved in our kids lives i think that's especially true for a lot of fathers and men who, despite changes in our economy and our culture, still shift the burden of looking after and caring about children onto women's shoulders. And that also plays out in the broader communities that young people grow up in. So not just in your household, but also in your neighborhood, um, in your faith community, in the community centers and social services that you engage, there's just not a lot of men participating and taking that responsibility of being role models and being active in the lives of children. That is a, a big thing that I see as a problem, partially because a lot of the young men who wind up in the toughest places, who you know wind up in the justice system, for example, or in the child welfare system, or who whose interactions with uh, government are often oppressive. Um, I think those are often men who are chasing a kind of masculinity that is very um, harmful and destructive and narrow and confining and stifling. So, so that's a big part of what I try to do is highlight that role that I think men can play in doing what maybe on face value seems rather simple, but is actually very hard in practice, which is, you know, be a good community member be a good father, be a good uncle, be a good brother, be part of the family networks that you're part of and be engaged. Beyond that, there's like a, you know, I think like there's tons of challenges with law enforcement that are, um, and, and accountability of police officers and cops that I write a lot about and same with schools. Um, so yeah, I could probably go on about the different things that are, that are not working. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned that I, <clears throat> today I just re-listened to your, uh, Ted talk. Just, I had heard it a little while ago. And it was such an interesting moment when you talked about how yourself and your mother may have lived in the same house, but they live in two different, you lived in two different neighborhoods. And this issue of police carding has actually come up in Edmonton too. But I have to tell you, like, I have lived such a comfortable life in neighborhoods like this where I have never, never thought of police as anything but a comfort. There was one time some friends and I, and we were all six foot, three and taller. Uh, we were out walking one night and we saw a fight break out. And this is probably 10 years ago. And I remember the, a police car came screaming up and this 120 pound female officer who was half of any of our size came out and we felt so much better. Like I was like, phew, the police are here. And so it's so hard for me. And I'm just being honest to relate to, to seeing, to, to knowing what it would be like to have police basically stopping you in the street or in the stairwell and saying, what are you doing? Like for me, that is just a hundred percent foreign. 
And so it, you know, when the when the carding issue came up recently, it actually made me think. Like, it's not even just about police records, but it's just about being a, a hit on the database, which then feeds itself next time and next time, right? So I don't know if you want to talk about that. Um, you know what what you think po- the policing model should be or where it should go, but I found that to be a very interesting part of your your story. The the the, the power that police have in shaping how someone sees their belonging right in our society is easy to take for granted in the positive sense. Right. So like that, what you describe as seeing police officers as problem solvers or allies of peace, that's, that's a sign of connection to your society. Right. I mean, that's like saying, you know, these people are publicly funded to keep us safe, have my back when that's the opposite. It is a very powerful push against, you know, being one of us, right? Being a Canadian, feeling like you are welcomed here, that people want you to succeed here. Because police officers are these, you know, publicly trusted and supported uh, entities, you know, they, I, I, and, and when, when they're seen in a negative context, it, you know, the academic research shows it, it erodes your willingness to participate in society. You feel like, you know, the public systems around you, government, the dominant culture that you uh, grow up in, that you live in, is one where you will be vilified or you will be unwelcomed. So it's, it's very important. And, it, and it's not just, you know, a bad experience you have with a cop, but it shapes your identity. It shapes how you interpret everything else that you will go through as a young person. That is why I use that language of, you know, me and my mother, who is an Irish, Scottish, Canadian, um, you know, and, and me being a biracial man whose father is Kenyan. Like I use that language to show that you can have two people in the same house in the same neighborhood, but that police officer representing something very different to them. I would say um, in terms of what policing should look like, what I always try to remind people of is, there's a lot of variability in where you go from observing that policing is not, you know, practiced equally across the board, right? That if you recognize that there is bias in law enforcement, that there is racial profiling, and at a bigger level, Ryan, as you said, that you will have two people who could have a very different experience of what it looks like to live in the same place. Uh, But, you know, that doesn't mean everyone who understands that is going to have the same solution. And what I really try to get people to understand is like, just someone can articulate a problem very well. That doesn't mean that the solution they provide is the one that you should go for. And what's been missing, I see in the conversation in Toronto, and I worry in other cities like Edmonton could happen here as well, as people become more sophisticated in their thinking about bias and race and policing that you wind up proposing solutions that don't actually improve that trust, right? That you're essentially saying, well, now we're just going to have people not get, get along together even more, as opposed to addressing what I think the root, co- root issue is to me, which is how welcomed and safe do you feel in your own city, in your own country, right? So th- the solutions that I propose are, are typically very localized, meaning when we say community policing, which is a buzzword in the I guess, lawyer, legal community. When I say it, I mean, you have officers that are kind of tied to a local neighborhood enough that they understand the community very well and they know people who they walk by and they're not floating from one neighborhood to the next 
and sacrificing building any meaningful relationships along the way. Police officers who know their local neighborhoods are far less likely to card somebody. They're far less likely to stop somebody with no cause. And they're more likely to see someone as an individual, which is the entire point of this in the first place, right? That people could walk around and feel like what they look like or the shade of their skin isn't going to determine how people see them and their behavior. Uh, I'm I'm glad that you I'm, Brian I'm glad and you guys, I'm glad you guys brought the issue of carding because it is something that was a became kind of a wasn't I don't think it was a huge defining issue of the municipal election in Edmonton in 2017 but it was definitely something that came up and it was something that candidates were put in a position where they had to answer because there were community advocates who were who wanted who were raising the issue at, at forums and on on social media um, you t- you talk about the issue you talk about the kind of the community policing model do you like do you have examples of where it's been done well. There are examples, I think, in every city where you have officers who've taken that seriously because a lot of it is a mentality and decision of how you use your time and your resources. So in Toronto, for example, you know, there are countless examples where you can find that at a local level, but in a division station, officers have built positive relationships with kids and their parents. But even where that happens, we have over since 2005 there has been programs where you have citywide officers and those citywide officers, which respond to where there is crime, they are the ones who fly in and vastly disproportionately are the ones who card people. So that is the kind of, it's a, it's a smaller scale example, but I think that's essentially how law enforcement functions everywhere. If you have officers who build those local relationships and have that accountability with their people they serve, and serve is a really key word there, right? That if there are officers who wake up every day, feel comfortable in the neighborhoods they work in, they know people, they have relationships, that's what good policing looks like. And I've, I've been fortunate enough to travel to different cities and see that in action in different places. The challenge is always how do you scale that, right? Like if you've got good officers with the right mentality, how do you make that normal across your entire city? And that is what police leadership, in my view, doesn't spend enough time thinking about. And the, and the commissions or uh, citizen review boards or whatever municipal entities exist from city to city that are, de- that are designed to hold those, that police leadership accountable, they're not emphasizing it. They're not, they're not saying that is what we're going to talk about when we meet on a monthly basis or that is what we're going to hold our chiefs responsible to when we review their, the job that they've done for the year. They treat it as a secondary priority and one that really only comes up when there's bad news. But in terms of, of, of a positively and affirmatively articulating that as the job, I don't think we're doing that very well. And that's where actually the everyday people have more of a lever for change, right? Like as a, you know, I'm not a police officer. It's hard for me to engage with the frontline officers. But what I can do is I can shape who's going to determine the review board that holds those officers accountable. Those are usually city politicians or people appointed by city politicians. I mean, that, and, and, and when it comes up in a municipal election, Dave, like you're describing, uh, that's what the conversation I think should look like. It should be about how do we build a system of accountability where we're checking on the culture we have of policing and we're breaking through what is often called that kind of blue wall, right? Where, you know, officers are kind of look at their culture and their work as very distinct from everyone else. It's a public service and it needs to be treated as such. There's not, there doesn't need to be a dividing line between how we talk about these issues. And, and, and I think that's the most important thing when it comes to like, you know, when, when race and identity are implicated in public policy, 
the kinds of conversations we have are probably the most important thing. Because if we shift the burden of solving these onto certain parts of our society, right, the minority groups that might be most affected, um, then it do, it, it's, it's not enough of a critical mass to make this something that everyone takes seriously enough to solve. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's a. I mean, your point about putting putting pressure on the politicians and the people who appoint the members of the police commission. I mean, I think about I think that's something that was kind of missed in the in the twenty seventeen municipal election here in Edmonton, because I think that the the momentum around the issue was just getting started in terms of being in, in the kind of the public sphere or the mainstream sphere, where a large portion of the population were first being exposed to the idea of carding, like, me. like yeah, like the yeah. three white guys sitting around the table here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I do think that you know if 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 one one of the things that uh, you know that ad- advocates could do, especially in Edmonton, is you know yeah it is putting pressure on city councilors, and that means at mobilizing during elections and mobilizing behind candidates who are going to you know be responsive to those issues when they're on city council and not just give them lip service. And and when when those those positions on the police commission are appointed, uh, appointing people who, as you said, won't be treating these as a secondary issues, but will be treating these these issues issues like carding and and community policing as as priorities. I think that's really important. Yeah, and like we're we're seeing, I think in Toronto right now, we've had a big uptick in in violence, right? Gun violence, gang violence. And I think that's a result in part of just bad relationships between police and the communities they serve. So when we look at this and we say, well, we know when, when there's crime, everybody's going to panic. It doesn't matter what you look like, what age you are, where your parents come from. Everyone feels the, the, the scare of a crime increase. Well, you have to think pr- proactively and say, like, what are the things we need to be talking about so that we don't get there, right? And one of those things is making sure law enforcement are doing a good job, getting the information they need from the public, and building the kind of relationships with young people where they're a positive example of, you know, following our, our kind of collective morals and our laws and, and upholding that rule of law as opposed to eroding the confidence that some people have that this is a fair society. That's, that is... That is the challenge, I think, is getting people to worry about these problems before they feel like they have to. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think in the co- in, in the context of the prairies, I mean, Edmonton, Calgary, the you know Regina, Saskatoon, Winnipeg, with with huge and and growing very fast urban Aboriginal populations. Our Indigenous population in the urban centers is growing very fast in the, in the West. And and I mean, I might not be the same in Toronto or in other parts of Canada, but I think specifically for the West, um, I mean, that's something that that we you know we that's that's an issue that's present now i mean it's a reality that's present net but it's present now and if these issues are continuing it's only going to become a bigger issue in the future yeah and my, my hope is always that you know one of the reasons why i try to highlight that there's going to be a diversity in the solutions people propose is because i want people to see these issues as the same kinds of things that a politician of every stripe needs to be able to talk about so whether you're a conservative or an ndp or in the middle that people expect you to have an answer to these questions that it's not just an issue that some people feel the need to address and bring up it's a core public policy issue just like public transit and public housing and um you know everything else that politicians are expected to think about and just like those other issues it takes time to be skilled in talking about race and diversity and the different ways people experience our society and law enforcement and crime. And if you're not expected to talk about them and being held account to have good answers and good policy solutions, then you're never going to have a good conversation about it. And if we can't talk about it well, we're not getting anywhere. Are you seeing um, the rise of some of these groups like the Wolf Pack and, and different groups that sort of support young men and teach them uh, I don't know, ways to be better people. 
Um, is that very recent or is that something that's been happening a lot in the past and it's only a light shining on it now because of some of the issues that you talk about in your book? I think it's there's a f- certain framing of that type of work that's recent. There's a there's a stream of that work that I, uh, I try not to disparagingly so, but do often think of it as almost like being a like an apologist for men, right? Yeah. So it's like masculinity is terrible, men are terrible. Let's like help us not be terrible. Okay, uh, that's a more recent thing, and I think that is based on some good things, which are, I think, men being more cognizant of the ways gender functions in our own lives and in our own identities. But there's also some negatives with that, meaning a lot of the time the conversation starts out of kind of negative assumptions rather than positive ones. You know, that that work, though, has been done in many different ways for a very long time. I think most like churches and mosques and temples and synagogues do versions of that work with with boys and young men all the time. And certainly I would say that Um, you know, most community programs I'm familiar with that try to reach out to men who might not have good role models or good influences in their lives, take that work very seriously. So parts of it are new, but parts of it, I think are, are, are tapping into a, you know, an age old tradition of figuring out how do you, how do you grow good people? Yeah. Yeah. Now, if there was, if there was a message you left us with as a, as, as podcast, the three people, the three hosts around the table. And our listeners, what would it be like? What can we do to help, uh, you know, fix some of this schism, I guess? Yeah. What I, I think the main message I would try to leave is there is a level of suffering that we seem to be comfortable with. And what I mean by that is in a place like Toronto, for example, when the homicide rate is about 30 a year, no one talks about it. And then it hits about 50 to 60 the violence starts to spread into the downtown area. People, it makes the news all the time. People are very upset. That is a uh, is disturbing to me because those thirty people who die when no one talks about it in that given year, uh, they have families, <laughs> and their and their circumstances are shaped by the decisions we make all the time. I think on a cultural level that's a really important problem for us to take seriously. And sometimes I feel that when we look at it strictly from a political or public policy lens, we lose sight of the fact that everyday people in the aggregate have decisions they can make about how they treat others, about the kind of culture we want to create for ourselves, and also the like day-to-day responsibility we take to be a resource for kids who might need good adults in their life. I'm partnering with the Big Brothers Big Sisters of Canada program on the travels I'm doing in part to remind people that there's a need for mentors. There's a need for adults to engage with young people who need good examples to follow. And it's something that you don't have to be you don't have to be magically talented to be able to do. Everyone can do it. And yet we hold ourselves to this like standard of you have to be the special kind of person with a special kind of job to make a difference and that's just not true. That's, I think, the main thing I would, I'd like to leave people with. And, and I, I hope one of the main messages of my book and my work. Where can people find your book? And what, do you, and what are you doing with your time here in Edmonton? Well, while, while I'm in Edmonton, I'm going to be visiting a bunch of uh, schools. So middle schools and high schools. And then I'll also be speaking at the Legislative Assembly on Tuesday. 
and uh, doing some events with the Big Brothers, uh, Big Sisters program. I'll also be interviewing people for a future podcast I'm working on uh, that is trying to feature people who are working with youth in different circumstances. Uh, that's what I'll be doing in Edmonton. You can, um, my book is available, Why Young Men, at uh, Amazon, Indigo Chapters, everywhere you buy books, pretty much. And uh, also, at Why Young Men on Twitter is where we post a lot of the book's information. Great. And uh, the moment that podcast is available, you're going to hear about it on the Dave Berta podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Jamil. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. The Dave Berta podcast is brought to you by Let's Do Coffee, a podcast by the Maji Center at Nate. It's hosted by Daniel Van Velen and produced by the Maji Center for New Venture and Student Entrepreneurship at Nate. That's the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology for those of you uh, who don't live in Edmonton. Each episode features an interview with a student entrepreneur or Nate alumnus. They dive into topics that explore their challenges, questions, and fears involved in operating their companies. It comes out every two weeks, and you're going to want to check this one out at nate.ca slash Center. That's Let's Do Coffee at nate.ca slash Center. The Dave Berta Podcast is also brought to you by We Are Alberta, a podcast by ATB economist Nick Ford. It's a monthly show that explores Alberta's geography, businesses, and organizations, and its diverse and fascinating people all through an economic lens. The next episode you'll hear comes out on November 13th. Uh, full disclosure, I work at ATB, and I actually help Nick to produce this podcast. But it's great. Uh, I should say, and it's great. You can read more and subscribe at atb.com slash wearealberta. And please leave a, a rating or a review. Nick is hungry for your feedback. That's We Are Alberta, a podcast by ATB Financial. You can find it at atb.com slash wearealberta. As we usually do, it's time to give a little update here on the nomination process and gossip and other news. Dave, um... I know that some people don't seem to realize that you do your website purely for pleasure <laughs> and as an unpaid volunteer. Um, but do you want to give us an update? Like, I've been checking it all day and I haven't seen anything, man. What's going on? There, there, there have been about, I don't know, 15 nomination meetings in the past 10 days, and I'm woefully behind uh, in terms of updating the, updating the nominations. So tune in this week. There's going to be a massive nomination update. But here today on this podcast is your sneak preview. <laughs> of the nominations that have happened and some that are coming up. So a, a couple of the ones that have happened over the past past couple of weeks. Um, well, one that one that uh, we that, talked about. that we talked about in, in a previous episode. Yeah, that Ryan has some involvement in. Oh, hold on. Which one are you talking about? I'm talking about Edmonton West Henday. Yes. That was last week. See, you I'm so what? far behind in my updates. I, just, I wanted to talk <laughs> about this because we talked so oh. much about the Soldiers of Odin controversy. Uh, that we should talk about how this nomination actually turned out in the end. Guys, I had this weird experience the other day. I helped for four or five hours, and then I hung out with my candidate at night waiting for the results with that awful feeling that you get when you're waiting for results. That like, that like... Oh, I'm feeling it right now, actually. In your gut of your stomach? And then she she won. (laughs) It was like, what? Politics? You can win? I don't have a great record lately. Yeah, it was great. It was tremendous. Nicole worked so hard. This is Nicole Williams we're talking about. Yeah, won, Nicole Williams. The UCP nomination in uh, Edmonton West Hand Day. Yes. And so she's a good friend of ours. She's been out there 
since like March, just pounding the pavement, working hard. So she was one of the candidates who was pictured with a couple guys from this group called the Soldiers of Odin. Yeah. I'm sure you heard about it. Even, I did hear about that. Yeah. Even out in the big smoke. And what I said at the time, and I actually got very emotional about it, is that I know the Souls of Odin have nothing to do with Nicole Williams. Now, you can make, and I think I even said this last episode, you can probably make an argument that people like myself should know more about these guys. Um, but, you know, our opponents, of course, took the opportunity to point out, and that's a tough photo. Like, if she could take that one back, she would, for the, sure. The, yeah, the three candidates, they were all smiling. <sighs> and, But I was just so pleased to see Nicole rewarded for her hard work, and she's going to be a great candidate, and she's going to be a great MLA. The other one that happened is we're not going to experience history. The current MLA for Fort McMurray Conklin was nominated in what is it called? The, yeah, Lila 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 Goodridge was was she won the by election in July in Fort McMurray Conklin, yeah. and she just won the nomination to run in twenty nineteen in the newly redrawn riding of Fort McMurray Lacklebish, which is a significant as we mentioned in the previous podcast, is a significant change. Yeah. It adds about twenty thousand new voters to the riding. So congratulations, Layla. And she did win. So she would have potentially sat in the house no, she would have potentially lost her renomination before she had a chance to sit in the house. For the first oh. time. Because, the, yeah, the legislature reconvenes on Monday. So congrats, Layla. Good job. So we also have uh, a couple nominations. So going back, going forward, uh, a couple nomination races or nominations for the NDP. Janice Irwin, uh, educator, community advocate, was acclaimed in Edmonton Highlands, Norwood. Can you put a flag on that? I want to come back to this one later. Sure. Well, we can talk about it right now. Uh, this this J- Janice uh, uh, is succeeding in the nom- in the NDP nomination, succeeding Brian Mason, who is a longtime NDP MLA, longtime fixture in Edmonton and Alberta politics, former city councillor, uh, has been an MLA since the year 2000. Driver of bus. Driver, been previous to being on city council. He was an Edmonton transit driver. Um, very well known. It's There's going to be big shoes to fill. And uh, I went to Janice's uh, nomination meeting in Edmonton Highlands, Norwood. There were about, it was an acclamation, but there were about 200 people who showed up. It was a good, good meeting. Um, it was kind of a pep rally to start our campaign. Do you see the look on my face? Uh, just describe this to our listeners. If you were going to pick a safe NDP seat, mm-hmm. not only in this time, but looking back, I mean, they had, when they had two seats, Mr. Mason was winning that election. What an opportunity, and I'm going somewhere with this, as if you can't tell. What an opportunity for the NDP to showcase some strength, some energy, some activity, some members, do a race. They they appointed a candidate, or claimed, I'm sorry. They claimed a candidate. They didn't have more than one interesting candidate in running in a race where if you guys acclaimed me... I would have won the seat as a new Democrat. Like that is the <laughs> safest seat, other than Rachel Notley's seat. You, you know, I, I I was surprised there wasn't a race for the for the nomination into Highlands Highlands Norwood because it is considered a safe NDP seat. Um, the NDP have held it, the, the exception of one term, they've held it since 1986. So this is probably you know aside from it, Edmonton Strathcona, which is Rachel Notley's seat, this is probably the safest, one of the safest. But I thought it was interesting. Um, I guess two things. First of all, I think one of the things that Janice Irwin's campaign did, they had a really strong campaign launch. They had about two or 300 people out for her campaign launch last month at the Bellevue Community Hall. Um, And I think that show of strength probably would have scared a lot of people off who were potentially running. Um, From what I understand, there was an appetite to have a nomination race in in Highlands Norwood. But um, Janice Irwin is a well-known name. She ran federally for the NDP in the running, did very well federally. She didn't win, but she did well. 
Um, no, that's she, true. She's hardworking. Um, and I think one of the things that, and I think I thought this was this was actually quite quite an important note that that Brian Mason mentioned during at the nomination meeting. He had a kind of a, a little tribute speech, go farewell speech, talking about how New Democrats shouldn't take Edmonton Highlands Nord shouldn't take voters in Edmonton Highlands Nord for granted just because they voted NDP for the past thirty some years. It doesn't yeah. mean that they're you know that they're solid yeah. NDP voters. And while I do think that the NDP has a solid base in Edmonton Highlands Norwood. Uh, a lot of, the, I think, a lot of voters um, would in Hi- Edmonton Highlands Nord would consider themselves Brian Mason, Brian Mason voters first, yeah. uh, and they may consider themselves NDP leaning or NDP voters. But I think Brian carries a lot of weight in that riding because he was a city councilor for many years. Mm-hmm. He was a uh, an MLA for many years, and I think in a lot of ways he's seen as kind of a, a working class champion in, yeah. in politics in in Edmonton. Is is your contention, Ryan, that there was an opportunity to like use Edmonton Highlands Norwood to? build more of a media narrative around a couple of strong candidates. Let's say Janice wins. She did, but if she'd won the the nomination, those other candidates could have fanned out. Like, is that what you're kind of thinking about? So I'm of two, two snarky observation points on this. The first one is as there, as, as someone who thinks about the strategy of campaigns, um, I can't help but notice that they as a party are avoiding a lot of the messiness of the democratic process. The reason why all you hear about is UCP nominations is because we're the only ones running nominations. Um, Not literally, but figuratively. The reason why our AGM had some drama, is that the right word, some color to it? I think that's an understatement. Is because (laughs) several thousand, 3,000 conservative party members came down to Red Deer. And And, and this is not the narrative that Jason Kenney is letting the horses run. But he really is. Like, mm-hmm. as a strategy, I wish we were putting our thumb on the scale a little bit more. I wish we were appointing candidates. Not suggesting Janice was appointed. I actually think you're right. Nobody, everybody assumed they couldn't beat her. Yeah. But I just want you guys to know, NDP friends out there, that I know what you're doing. You're stage managing things to avoid um, both. Er, what did we say last week? Uh, er, eruptions eruptions bozai. Bozai. Yeah, yeah. Do you, you know Latin, right? You went to Yale. We didn't take a Latin <laughs> class at Yale, unfortunately. Yeah, what do you do at Yale? <laughs> Ancient Greek, perhaps? Come on, man. <laughs> no, I missed that one, too, yeah. Is bozai the plural of bozo? We've decided that it is. Yes, so. yes. Anyway, Sounds that's my point. But, and also, it was, a, it was a missed opportunity, but the, the strategist in me actually thinks it's very smart. Because if you're going to win the seat anyway, which, no offense to whoever runs for the other parties there, but that's a tough mountain to climb, mm-hmm. then why risk having some sort of... Um, the types of bozo eruptions that the UCP is having is from people who aren't politi- politically experienced and who are ideologically motivated jumping into the political arena, saying the kind of things that like seasoned politicians don't stray very far from the script mm-hmm. for a reason, but you're seeing new people who are excited get in there and with social media and with all the everything else, they just blow themselves up and the NDP is avoiding a lot of that. They're, they're not letting the crazy people grab the mics at their convention, which we'll, which we'll talk yeah. about a little later in the yeah. podcast. So let's move on. So uh, uh, looking at some other nominations we had, uh, and just, just to wrap it up, um, we already mentioned Fort McMurray, Lac La Biche. We had UCP nominations. We had four UCP nominations held on October 27th. Uh, Banff, Kananaskis, Calgary, Acadia, Calgary Varsity, and Red Deer North, which I'm just going to pull up my list here. And we had in... Banff, the new Banff Kananaskis riding, which is, uh, I think mostly most uh, mostly composed of the of the the Banff and Canmore sections of the current Banff Cochrane riding. Cochrane goes to the new 
Airdrie Cochran riding. Uh, and I think Banff Kananaskis takes in a southern chunk of the high, Highwood riding. Um, so there's a bit of a change there. Uh, Miranda Rosen was nominated in that riding. Uh, in Calgary, Acadia, my old friend Tyler Shandro That's right. was nominated for, as the UCP candidate. And, uh, and for those of you who, who, who don't remember Tyler, uh, he was the, the lawyer who signed the infamous Govern Yourself Accordingly letter that, uh, that he sent to me. Uh, w- while he was a lawyer representing one uh, Edward Stelmack uh, during a, uh, a situation that I found myself in back in 2007. Like in Star Wars, I think it is, by turning his force against you, he made you more powerful than, <laughs> yeah. than he could have ever dreamt. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you for that. <laughs> He's the reason why Dave Berta... Is, is the emperor, the equivalent of yeah. the emperor. In the juggernaut of the left <laughs> sitting here today. So th- congratulations on your nomination win, Tyler. This is, and uh, and uh, and this this that is not, not not the last time you'll hear from me for sure. <laughs> Have you registered his domain name? <laughs> I think he I think I think he's registered his own domain name, but I will check. So uh, I think our audience knows the story, but they may not. In what was it, two thousand and eight? Two thousand two thousand seven. You noticed I'm gonna just totally sure, just go this. for it. You noticed that Eldstalmac.ca had come up, was available. Stalmac was the pres- the premier at the time, so you registered it, and you weren't that malicious. No, no, I didn't. At first, I didn't actually even really tell anybody. I just had it forwarded to my blog, uh, and then <laughs> well, I, Rick Mercer at the time, yeah, was he first or were you first? No, I Jason think Rick Kenny? Mercer was first. Rick Mercer did the JasonKenny.org to like a, um, to a gay rights website or something like that, uh, and. <laughs> So, so I forwarded, I, after a while, I, I, I just, I'd hung on to edstomach.ca and then I forwarded it one day in kind of a Rick Mercer, Stephen Colbert kind of moment to the Wikipedia entry for Harry Strom. Now, Harry Strom was the last social credit premier of Alberta. He was considered to be, you know, a nice man. Uh, he was a rural politician seen as a little bit out of his, you know, past his dude to past his best before day, a little bit out of touch um, with the with the times uh, and a lot of the, at the time, a lot of media pundits were comparing Ed Stelmack to Harry Strom. The end of a dynasty. Yeah, yeah. Peter Lougheed defeated Harry Strom, and that's when the Progressive Conservative dynasty started in Alberta. Um, and at the time, it looked that you know the PC party was shaky. The PC government at the time was really shaky. Stelmack didn't have a high approval rating at the time. He'd had there was a lot of party infighting between him and the Jim Dinning people in Calgary, um, and. The, I think the, yeah, the, the, the PCs had just lost a by-election in Ralph Klein's seat to the Liberals uh, right, right around that, that period. Way, and then they lost one. Yeah, it was yeah. the Liberals that time. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was, uh, you know, things were not looking great, great for, for, for Ed Stelmack. So You were a university student. I was a university student. And uh, so I received one day before Christmas, I received a, uh, a letter in the mail um, that actually they didn't have my address because I was a student living in a university residence. Um, so they sent them all to like all the D Cornoyers in Edmonton. <laughs> really? So my uncle Dan, I didn't know got that. the letter. Yeah. So he called me and said like, Dude, I got this letter, you know, you should come. So then, so then I, uh, I never knew this part. Yeah. So then I went and picked it up and this is December and I went and opened it and, uh, and then I went out for beer at the Empress with Chris Henderson and Don Iveson, uh, who I think had just become a city councilor. Uh, and I think Dan Kazor, who would later be of the National Post, was there, but he was not. I think he was still at the U of A. He, I think he was probably the editor-in-chief of the Gateway. He might, might have been at the editor-in-chief in the Gateway at the time, and I don't know. Were you there, Adam? I don't remember You might that. have been there. Someone else was there, but it was... I wasn't just, there. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. 
anyway, so I I just anyway I I I just opened it and then I went for went for a uh, for a drink with these guys and I don't even think I really told them what happened. I was just in total shell shock. I was like, oh my god, I'm a university student. I'm getting uh, I'm getting sued by the premier. <laughs> what do I do? I have no money. I literally have negative money at this time because I was you know in student I had st- all I had was student loans and then a line of credit that I, that was used that I was using to kind of cover everything else in between part time jobs. Um, uh, so then anyway, I, I kind of sat on it over Christmas. I talked with it, talked, talked about it with some friends. Um, and, uh, and then the first week, the second week of January, I picked, it was a really slow news week. Uh, I st- went to the, the camp, the basement of the Cameron library at the U of A and I scanned the letter and then I emailed it out to 400 of my closest friends and media contacts. And it became this massive story for about two weeks. And there were political cartoons and editorials and, and and Ed Stelmack had just been to Ottawa to like negotiate some big deal for Alberta, and he came back and had this scrum at the airport. And all the reporters wanted to talk about was why was he suing this university student <laughs> over a domain over a fourteen dollar domain name? And uh, anyway, it became a huge story. And uh, well done. I'm guessing they dropped the lawsuit. Yeah, they kind of backed off. Yeah, they backed off pretty quickly. And then actually, I got this. I. I the, the day it happened, the day I released it, because um, it was just like, I think Kim Ternasty from CBC was the first reporter I spoke to, and then I went on Dave Rutherford. And actually, funny story, on on Dave Rutherford's show, the person he had on before me who was defending me, and I, I remember, because when you call in on the phone, you can hear what's on the radio, you could hear what was on the radio already, and it was Ezra Levant. And I thought, oh my God, are they going to put me on the air with Ezra Levant? <laughs> <laughs> Is he like, oh man. Um and uh, anyway, Ezra Levant was defending me. He was like saying, talking about how you know, freedom of speech, blah blah blah, and and uh, and and so I was like, wow, this is not what I expected to happen. And then, uh, um, yeah, and then and then about I think about noon or about one o'clock that day, I get this phone call, and this kind of really somber voice comes on the phone and says, you know, hi, this is uh, you know, is this Dave Cornway? I say, yeah, this is Dave Cornway. And they say, oh, they says, oh, this is this is Ron Glenn. I'm chief of staff to Premier Stelmack. You know, I, you're not going to be surprised, but this didn't really go the way we expected it to go. And then we had a conversation, and he was very, he was very, um, uh, at that point, kind of very easy to deal with. And they really just wanted this issue to go away. And and to to you know, as as much as this embarrassed Mr. Stelmack, and I think probably politically damaged him in some ways, um, not electorally because they went and won a massive landslide majority a few months later. Uh, but I think it did. I think you know, I did. I think Graham Thompson from the Journal wrote that I was the only. I was the only person who was able to make Ed Stelmack look like a bully because he was considered a nice man, honest Ed. Um, uh, but I, I, I do think in, in, in the long run, I think that he was, he actually ended up being a pretty good premier. So it wasn't anything against him personally, though, you know, I, I didn't appreciate being threatened by government. I know, you know, I know, I know it's, you know, nothing was ever proven in court, but this sounds very much like a crime of opportunity, Dave. I, I, what could you possibly mean? <laughs> well, I mean, like, I, I'm trying to picture young Dave Cornway with his sticky up frat boy hair, as you were described by. Well, N- Neil Waugh from Neil the Edmonton Waugh. Sun described me as not just some not, sure. not just some fat 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 frat boy with a sticky up haircut. <laughs> which, if I never I had never met Neil Waugh, I was about 120 pounds at the time. <laughs> uh, I did not have sticky up hair. Yeah, he was. He was and like, I was not mem- not a member of a fraternity. <laughs> I'm just trying to picture you like at your computer in your dorm or whatever, like looking up the Ed Stelmack domain and going, huh, 
<laughs> All right, I'm gonna crack a beer and we're gonna do this. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm gonna spend my last fourteen dollars. Fourteen dollars, yeah, because it was um, uh, uh, yeah, I was like writing about Ed Stelmack on my blog, and I wanted to find something from his bio, and I just assumed that EdStelmack.ca would be his website, and then he'd have a biography of himself, and then it turned out that like no one owned the domain name. You so. dr- you dramatically changed the the process for political communications in Alberta. I'm I'm. I'm gonna. Yeah. That's my line in the sand. There's a checklist somewhere, yeah. and you don't want to get cornwayed. Cornway. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, domain. I, I'm glad I could contribute to that. So, candidate, buy your domain name. <laughs> even if you're thinking about running and you haven't announced, even if you're not sure you're gonna run, buy your domain name. Just do it. It's like twelve, fourteen bucks. Yeah. Like the cost hasn't gone up. So this weekend, our man Dave Cornier was on site, on location at Ground Zero for the NDP at their annual general meeting taking place downtown Edmonton. Uh, I can only imagine the sort of reverberations of the force that took place there when this many New Democrats descend on one place. But I guess this is what we've been living in since 2015, so maybe it wasn't such a big deal. The force was in harmony. (laughs) When we, the conservatives, do our conventions, we go out to real Alberta, you know, Red Deer and (laughs) suburban hotels. You guys just take it right to the ledge. Like, you don't want to leave the 100-meter radius of, of the dome. Yeah, they, it, were, it, they it, were what, like eight blocks away from the legislature? Yeah, it was at the Weston downtown, actually held in the same ballroom that uh, the NDP held their 2015 election night victory party in. So that was they, and that was referenced a number of times. I would imagine throughout the, yeah. throughout the convention. So give us a recap, Dave. What what happened this weekend? Well, I mean, it was very much a uh, it was very much a, a pep rally, I would say, um, in terms of of it being a policy convention. Um, there weren't really many or any real controversial policy policy discussions that happened, and I think this was, in I think this was by design. I think the NDP uh, wanted to avoid the kind of controversy and negative news coverage that the UCP received at their convention in Red Deer around, as we talked about earlier, about you know letting. Uh, more more ex- members with more extreme opinions get the microphones uh, and having more extreme debates on uh, on or debates on more more extreme or less mainstream issues. Um, it was very well staged. It was a very well stage managed event. Oh, I also want to mention it, it. They also they also didn't want to repeat what happened the last time a large uh, gathering of New Democrats in Edmonton. It happened in Edmonton, which is when Thomas Mulcair lost the leadership review and the what was it called the uh, the we're, it, we've totally forgot what it's called. The um, the leap manifesto. Leap manifesto. Oh, yeah. That's right. Oh, yes. Yeah, that yeah. That's document. totally that old, that not old not in anybody's <laughs> vocabulary anymore. Anyway, that was the big that was the big thing back in 2015 or 2015. Yeah, 2015. Um, so they, it was it was very clear that it was a well staged managed event. It was an opportunity for the NDP to rally their supporters to for cabinet ministers to test. Uh, talking points at the mics. It was there were a lot of cabinet ministers and a lot of MLAs up at the mics, talking, reminding their their delegate the delegates, twelve hundred delegates, which was the the largest NDP convention in uh, in Alberta NDP history. So that that's notable. Um, but it was it was interesting. I mean, even even though it was it was stage managed and they avoided controversy, it was upbeat. There was a lot of energy in the room. Um, it's it seemed very clear that uh, that this is not a group of of partisans who are cowering in the shadows yeah, uh, yeah. afraid of the UCP wave in 2019 these people are ready to get out and fight for Rachel Notley like it's really it was yeah. it was it was 
it was very interesting because I didn't know really really know what to expect when I went because right. you know the NDP have been on this kind of had this onslaught of attacks from 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 their opponents over the past three years and at some point sometimes they kind of at least I think sometimes their politicians seem a little browbeaten a little beaten down yeah. um, but well, that was not apparent this weekend when you talk to them I mean obviously opinions vary but the folks I speak to think they have a path to winning and mm -hmm. I think you have to yeah. I mean, the minute you start to say, well, we're screwed anyway, let's just go home, then that's what happens. Yeah. I actually have to say, I like the theme, Fighting for You. Yeah. Reminds me of another uh, really good one from 2006 called Stand Up for Canada. But <laughs> that, it's that's great. The, that one worked, right? Yeah. It did. Yeah. But I wonder again if she's trying, again, this whole fighting theme, is the fact that I like it a good thing or a bad thing for, for them? I don't know. Well, on the way over here, we were talking in the car about uh, how... The messaging, at least based on the sort of cursory glance I've had, mm -hmm. definitely feels like the NDP is and actually is positioning itself as an underdog. And mm -hmm. all the polls say that they are, right? Which I think is actually a pretty good position for them to be in. They fought from the margins before and won. Yeah. And if I were, if I were, you know, uh, with the UCP, I, I would be a little bit worried about being this far ahead this early because now nowhere to go but down exactly yeah you're just going to seed ground mm -hmm. and they've been terribly effective with this kind of strategy but i don't like can we we can't expect a repeat of 2015 that would be ridiculous well yeah 2015 is going to be i mean 2019 will be totally different from 2015 the, the, the because the the mold is broken mm -hmm. the two of the political parties that where three of the main parties in 2015 don't really don't actually exist anymore. Won't be contesting the election. Just um, a fully operational battle star. <laughs> do, you, do you really want to? Do you really want to? Do you, you really think the UCB should be comparing themselves to the Dark Empire? Well, yeah. clearly I don't receive talking points. But clearly. <laughs> but so, Jamil, I, we make fun of Toronto out here a lot, and you know we assume you don't pay a lot of attention to the rest of the country. But give us your perspective on Alberta politics. Rachel Notley, Jason Kenney. What does what what's word on the street when you? hear about Alberta from out there? Well, I was teaching at uh, Osgoode Hall Law School, Rachel Notley's alma mater. And so people at the school are very proud of her. And that was one perspective I got a lot of was where people were surprised and happy. I think Toronto generally, at least the people I know, did it, it thought this was like a pretty epic anomaly of an election. And that inevitability maybe that you're talking about where it's like, is is this kind of preordained that the UCB just win again. <clears throat> um, I feel like that's what most people think is going to happen. And so, uh, you know, I will say, though, having seen Andrea Horvath and her team go up against Doug Ford in Ontario, Rachel Notley, in my mind, sets a far more serious tone as an as an NDP politician than what we've seen provincially in Ontario, someone who seems willing to kind of think about governing and not just kind of ideological kind of uh, banter. So yeah, I guess that's my take is that I think most people are probably are surprised, for instance, at her interactions with Justin Trudeau uh, and that she's, she seems like she's trying to solve problems and not be an ideologue in a way that the NDP tend to be when they don't think they're going to govern. I just want to add, I guess, just two two things. Um, Rachel Notley had uh, what I would describe as a very good keynote speech today at the convention. Um, anybody who's seen Notley speak and at, at, really at any kind of function, but especially these kind of, of party functions, she is excellent. It's yeah. really where she excels. Um, and well, you can I very much thing. see that she cares, she's carrying this party. Yeah. Um, 
we've talked about this before. It's going to be yeah a tremendous showdown of talented politicians at their peak sort of skills and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and, be great. and we've seen the NDP already start to drop the NDP logo from some of their official documents. Oh, I was going to and have the yeah. little stylized Rachel Notley logo. Isn't that interesting? NDP. And I mean, it makes sense. It's uh, imagine how that would be. Uh, let me stop myself because you sound so lame when you say that. But imagine how that would be covered in any other party. I mean, it would be noted, right? Yeah. And she's just, I mean, she's clearly... It's, it has been noted right here. She, we're noting it. Note. <laughs> she's, she's also made some pretty strong statements about the federal party and the federal leader and her colleagues in BC. So, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, but her, the way she's taken the provincial New Democrats away from the tribe is very interesting to me. So she went to Toronto and campaigned for Andrea Horvath before the provincial election. Mm-hmm. I wonder what that relationship is like. I mean, it's just, I think she has realized that she really has to be an independent version of the NDP mm-hmm. to be successful here. Yeah, no, it'll basically be like a Rachel's team election campaign. We've I seen think. something like that yeah. before, haven't we? Yeah, well, and it worked too at that time. So two, two points, just two points, one before we, before we move on covering the Rachel Notley speech. One, uh, she mentioned that the balance, the budget will be balanced ahead of time, ahead of when it's scheduled is what she said. Uh, and second, she announced that, not, like, not like next week. During her next term? During her next term, but ahead of schedule. Okay. So they're not going to balance the budget by next spring. They're not going to cut $10 billion or $8 billion from the budget by next spring. Need to grow a bigger... I don't think any new Democrat would vote for them if they cut $8 billion <laughs> from the budget between now and next spring. Um, and then the second point is uh, she talked about over the... Was it her comment? Was over the next few weeks, they're going to be releasing details of, of a major new energy diversification plan. I saw that, Which yeah. she talked about, and she talked a lot about um, invoking Peter Lougheed's legacy, talking about building refineries here in Alberta rather than shipping out raw product. So so she's announced um, a 30% reduction in CO2 emission by 2030. They're phasing out, essentially phasing out coal, moving mm-hmm. to renewables, but mm-hmm. none of that is what she's talking about. She's talking about actually adding more refinement. More capacity. value value added, I think, is what she's talking about. Because the issue with the, the pipeline that we're talking about is it's actually pumping fairly raw bitumen, yeah. right? So she's talking about processing more of that here, and then and then maybe the pipeline or rail would be a way to have more finished product. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what she talked about was the fact that the U.S. is now exporting the oil. So, I mean, we've heard this line quite frequently over the past few months about how our greatest, our biggest customers become our biggest competitor. Um, and she talked a lot about, you know, not funding, uh, you know, not fund, not, not, not losing money to, a, you know, to, or not, not helping fund in terms of our exports to the United States um, and relying so heavily on the United States, um, not helping fund uh, private prisons and border walls. That's kind of the line that played that played over really well in the NDP crowd. Um, I'm sure it did. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, uh, I guess we'll wait to hear more of that, but that'll, you know, we're, we're five or six months away from an election call. I got to expect that that's going to be a big part of the NDP platform going into 2019. I'd like to take the chance to put our Toronto friend here on the spot again. W- one of the things that I'm always interested in is what is the perception? And I'm not, I'm trying not to be a totally insecure Albertan, but what is the perception of the oil sands of the energy industry from your perspective in central Canada, you know, cause it seems to me like it's not seen as something that's as much in the national interest as we wish it was that it's more of a Alberta story. Um, what is your perception of the energy industry? And if, and if we're trying to convince the GTA, you know, mainstream people in, in Toronto 
that the oil sands is a positive resource for the whole country. What what, what would you recommend, Jamil? In some ways, I think the oil sands has the same problem that capitalism has in the sense that people don't seem to connect the business activity with any positive outcomes when they're critical of it. And so it's easy to see it as simple kind of resource extraction. And there's like those famous images of essentially like a hole being dug in the ground that I think a lot of people that, think of when they hear oil sand. National Geographic photo spread was... Exactly, yeah. Not great. And, and I, I think that's a really dominant perception. But that's partially dominant because people haven't connected. Well, if the oil sands are doing well, like what is the like positive that comes from that, right? Like people don't think about the jobs or that... <clears throat> maybe a successful oil and gas industry here would lead to more diversification and other alternative options being better funded and better explored by consequence. And I think that's almost like the, the challenge that capitalism has, which is that the, the positive outcomes of capitalist activities seem to be misunderstood by a lot of people, or there's a disconnect between business and good social outcomes. That is the challenge I think the oil sands has, which is, in a, if you have family, for example, like a lot of my friends do who came out West and got a job and maybe got the best job they've had up to that point because of the economic boom out here, maybe you'll understand the complexity of what this economy does for people beyond the resource extraction of it. But when you don't have family or you don't have that personal connection, I think you don't understand mm -hmm. that it's more than just a big hole in the ground, that there's real people. Uh, that are being affected by this being a success or not. I, um, I, I do think one of the concerns I have about how fragmented our country is, is that people in Toronto don't seem to be all that concerned about what happens when families don't have jobs out here. It's a, it bothers me a lot as somebody who's seen what life is like when you don't have great economic opportunity. It, it, I don't like that we seem very privileged to not think about how um, how economic changes might affect real people. So I, I, I'm not happy quite honestly with, with how a lot of Ontario and I think Canada at large has reacted to what Albertans have been going through. Political third party advertisers made the news this week. You may know them or may have heard of them as political action committees, uh, or PACs or PACs. Uh, they made the news this week when it was it was revealed it was uh, uh, reported on that one pack called Shaping Alberta's Future, which is uh, supporting Jason Kenney and the UCP, uh, accepted I think close to one hundred and seventy thousand dollars from different car various car dealerships around the province of Alberta. And this is this is the, the kind of the the, the the, the first time the PACs have, I think, really gotten a lot of attention in terms of, of a specific example and specific uh, donations, uh, a lot that it's gotten a lot of a lot of attention in the news. Um, it was soon after revealed that uh, the donations were were sent to the Shaping Alberta's Future PAC following a meeting between Jason Kenney and the Motor Dealers Association of Alberta, um, where we're told in, in, in a letter from MDA chair to the members which soliciting the donations for um, for shaping as Alberta's future that a number of promises were made uh, to Cardi the car dealers Association uh, if Jason Kenny were elected 
Um, not surprisingly, some of them are Jason Kenney's kind of key talking points, eliminating the carbon tax, uh, reducing corporate and personal income taxes, reducing minimum wage, uh, rolling back changes the NDP has made to the labor code, OHNS and WCB, but also changes that, uh, that the NDP have implemented around consumer protection uh, in, um, in the car industry and the decision of the provincial government to uh, return the the regulatory body, the AMVIC, into a an actual government agency. And then there's this weird sixth promise that has been made, or sixth thing that uh, that the dealers have said uh, Jason Kenney will push legislation through in the legislature uh, if he becomes premier, which is banning imported right-hand drive Asian vehicles. Yeah, that seems oddly specific which, to me. Which, which seems incredibly specific and... Specifically Asian? Yes, like, it says banning imported RHD, that's right-hand drive, Asian vehicles. So if I have an Audi that's right-hand drive, they're okay with it. Well, I think this but means... But a Subaru. I, 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 yeah, I, I would assume that if you have a British car or... I mean, most of them do tend to be Supras and... Like, if I think about it, it is mostly Japanese or Korean yeah. cars, but it's still oddly specific. It seems weird, and I don't really quite understand. I uh, I read an article in Jalopnik, uh, which is like a car website, and th- they were trying to analyze this letter and analyze why specifically the Motor Dealers Association of Alberta would want to ban the import- imported right-hand drive Asian vehicles, and they couldn't really figure it out. So maybe this is an issue with one or two dealers uh, that they don't like it, or they feel that... that any imports are a competition, um, but it, out of, out of the six promises, this one kind of poked, <laughs> kind of kind of stood out as kind of a really weird one and a weird one that that a lot of car dealerships are really obviously willing to donate a lot of money to see this done. Is, this one is man bites dog. Yeah, this whole story. Yeah, yeah. The rest of it is kind of just classic. What's the expression about sausage making and no one wants to see it and it's not a pretty picture. Yeah, and but that one was like weird yeah just just weird now now the reason why we're talking about political action committees and and you may may be asking yourself well didn't the alberta government ban corporate and union donations back in 2015 indeed it was bill one of rachel notley's government yeah that's right they banned corporate union donations to political parties and candidates but not to external groups like third-party advertisers and and so whose bill one was it i just want to clarify who was in government in june of 2015 it was Notley's government, that, right? That, that was right. Premier Rachel Notley, yeah. And so now one of the interesting things I think here is that we've actually had more time on the UCP side, the conservative side, yeah. to work with these rules because we've had more activity. You had a PCAA leadership, you had the merger vote, and then you had the UCP leadership vote. And so those were sort of a testing ground under this current legislation for how these groups can get involved, the limits, the third rails that they can't touch. And I don't think the labor side has really had a chance to kind of feel out the, you know, the limits yet on mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. But to some degree, this is the UCP's allies. You know, I have my, I wrote down some notes here. Third-party advertisers are using the laws that were set up by the NDP. Mm-hmm. The UCP complies with those laws. Some of these groups, sure, tend to be more UCP or conservative friendly. But we both know that that's not a one-way street. There are packs on the other side as well. Um, for example, UFC W four hundred one has donated three hundred ninety five thousand dollars to NDP aligned packs. And the one that kind of does bother me, I have to admit, is the AFL pack 
has contributed over $800,000 to their PAC. Sorry, AFL has contributed to their PAC for political spending. Those are non, those are mandatory union dues going to political action. I don't think that's any, what anyone had in mind when they were thinking about getting corporate money and union money out of the process. Like at least the car dealers have a choice. If you're a member of the Alberta Federation of Labor and those dues are coming out of your family's budget, your monthly grocery budget, and then you're going to some group to do politics, that doesn't smell great to me either. Well, th- this kind of, I mean, the, one of the explanations that I've, I've heard of why the AF, the Alberta Federation of Labor um, funding, or why, why, the disc- why, why that funding falls under this disclosure this, is that that money, the, the funds that are publicly disclosed on the Elections Alberta website aren't necessarily um, political in terms of how we would traditionally think of politics in terms of elections and in terms of what we're, you know, what we usually talk about. Some of the money uh, that it would be lit would be, would be found in that, um, in that disclosure would have gone to political action, like a campaign for expand to, to expand affordable childcare, for example, a campaign to, uh, try right. to convince the government to reform labor laws. So this, these weren't necessarily pro NDP, like in terms of like bashing the UCP pro NDP, but these are trying to Actually try calling trying to, the NDP yeah, on calling the NDP on, you need to do better on affordable childcare. Well, you need to do better on, on occupational and safety issues. So, so just because the, and I think this probably applies to some, some of, some of the other third party advertisers, uh, just because that, you know, the organization may have political leanings. Yeah. The Alberta Federation of Labor supports the NDP. That's, I think that's no surprise. Part of the NDP. Yeah, that's yeah. going back to the formation of the NDP when with the, the the CCF and the Canadian Labor Congress back in the 1960s. Like this is the the origin story of the of the Big NDP labor. going back to the 1960s. So, um, well, and this stuff's all new to Albertans, right? But in Ontario, it's not new, and in the states, it's not new. So you've seen PACs get involved in elections before. You can make the argument Tim Hudak didn't lose to the Liberals; he lost to this massive PAC um, spend. So, Jamil, what do you think of what we're seeing? I think sometimes when we talk about PACs, we think of them as like, uh, like we think of like the Koch brothers and George Soros and like these people who are... are uh, the guy from the Monopoly cover. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> but uh, if you think about them as another like lever for political change, they've worked in a lot of different kinds of ways. So when I was a, a student in law school... I interned with uh, Cory Booker's office, who is now a senator for New Jersey, but at the time was mayor of Newark. And, you know, he initially ran for mayor in 2002 and lost. And part of why he lost was he had limited name recognition and was running up against this really powerful kind of civil rights era guard uh, that was controlling politics in Newark. In 2006, he ran again. This time he had raised $6 million, a lot of it from PACs. His competitor had only raised 200000 or less. And because he was able to kind of outspend on messaging and getting issues out there and building his brand, he essentially broke through this civil rights era guard and became this fresh, young voice that now is one of the you know leading contenders for the 2020 Democrat nomination for president. And that's really because there were different ways of making a difference in politics. And that's, to me, what PACs can represent. If you only 
allow for the traditional avenues for of, for political change, a lot of what wins the day is just name recognition and how long you've been around and how many people already know who you are. And in that case, as we just saw in the Toronto election last week, 22 out of 25 city councillors are incumbents. It's so hard to break through when the only way to get yourself out there is to work through the traditional avenues. And PACs represent, I think, a different way of getting issues out there and getting messaging out there. So there's a lot of good things I think can come from it. It's not just the kind of creepy shadow government stuff that the Koch brothers and George Soros might be into. What do you think the next government, whichever flavor it is, Dave, what do you think they should look at doing? Like, are you saying, in your opinion, that these PACs are inherently, this is inherently bad? Or is this the right balance between getting, you know, letting the process play out and also cleaning up the the actual direct corporate and union meddling side? Like, I think, because the UCP didn't oppose the principle of getting corporate and union dollars out. And at the federal level, that's what they did last decade, right? So I think the principle is good, but I like, I do agree with what Jamal said that you have to have a way of these groups influencing the process because mm-hmm. PACs are people. Like all this is, if it wasn't popular, if there wasn't an issue there to draw on, then they wouldn't have success. So what, what do you think the government should change anything? Has the NDP said that if they would change anything, I don't know. I, no, I don't think I. I'm, I'm not sure they would. I mean, I think there's been some talk of tight tightening some of the rules, whatever that means. I don't necessarily. Th- I don't necessarily think this is a bad thing. Um, like, and and like water, political money follows the path of least resistance. And if you're going to ban corporate and union donations to political parties, that money is going to find its its way elsewhere because these are people. These are groups and and individuals uh, with interests in the political process. And and to say that you know that you can't participate or you can't contribute to the political process i I, i'm not sure that would really hold up um you know i I guess we'll see this is the first time we've really in alberta we've really experienced uh political action committees like we're seeing now um how much impact it will actually have on the next election i'm not even totally sure um one of the things that hasn't really been noted in any of the media coverage of of political the the political action committees lately is that as of December 1st, 2018, uh, the third party or political third party advertisers be- become election third party advertisers and a new set of rules is oh, are implemented. I didn't know that. Yeah. So as, as of December 1st, 2018, um, the PACs will follow it. They'll have to register as, as election advertisers uh, and they'll, they'll be limited to spending $150,000 province wide between December 1st and the day after the next election. The day after? Yeah. So that basically they're in the election campaign. Yeah, and, and, and they're limited to... a lot to, of money. No, it's not. And they're limited to $3,000 in each uh, electoral district. So it's that's, really so... That's advertising spending. That's that's advertising, that's events, that's... What about... Material for campaigning. Yeah. That's, that, what about that, logistics of a ground war? Can they pay people to go campaign who I, I'm pretty sure that falls under it as well it's a pretty it's a pretty it ends up being a pretty as of December 1st it ends up being pretty strict so it's we're well seeing, lawyered is what you're saying yeah so so we're, so I think we're seeing with the I mean it's interesting to see the 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 MDA putting out this call for for donors from the car dealers this late in the game because they're gonna have to spend a lot of money in the month of November um, before uh, before the December first deadline when all this kicks in, so maybe that's that's producing a ton of material 
before the December 1st deadline so that you can use it and you're not actually having to having to print and, and pay for new material, uh, doing a lot of polling and public opinion stuff before December 1st. Um, but once December 1st rolls around, it kind of changes the game for uh, for political advertisers, because political advertisers, because right now there's, it's basically a wild west for, for PACs until the December 1st deadline. So one of the, I guess, principles of a PAC is that it can't be in direct consultation with the political parties. Yeah, they, they, they banned collusion between political parties and but PACs. The, but the AFL has an actual statutory role in the New Democrat political party. How do they manage that? How do they square that circle? I have no idea how that's going to work. I have no idea how it's going to work on on a practical basis between, not just between the and you know NDP kind of supportive groups like the AFL, but um, but also the pro UCP packs. I mean, am I really going to believe that the executive director of Shaping Alberta's Future is going to have no contact whatsoever with the with anybody from the UCP? Right. Uh, and you know, I, I mean, but imagine if MDA had an actual. What percentage of delegates does? do the various unions get at the NDP leadership process? Like it's a certain... The leadership process or yeah. the convention? Well, I think in the leadership race, they have an actual vote. They had about 25% of, of the vote in the last NDP leadership race in Alberta. There is no aside. analog on our side. It would be like if CAP got 10 ridings worth of um, leadership votes. Like it. Well, that's basically how it used to be when there was no limit on corporate donations. <laughs> So at the, I, at the old PC party, at least I'm not trying to say our side won't have to manage it as well, because in Alberta, in political action, it's a small community. Everybody knows everybody. You someone told me once that one of their first political jobs, they were told to look left and look right. And he was expecting the classic like Marines that one of these guys isn't going to make it. But what he actually said was, these are your guys for the next 50 years. And it's true. I mean, we're, we all know it's a small group. Yeah. So I think the collusion issue, nobody should get too righteous about it because probably no one has got super clean hands. But in one side, you have the leader's office taking a stakeholder meeting and making some political promises. On the other side, you have an actual part of their party pretending that. So you have NDP, you have the AFL, you have the AFL PAC. AFL and NDP are part of the same structure. The PAC and the AFL are part of the same structure, and we're saying that that is a L and not a triangle. Well, I don't. Okay, I mean we're we're getting a bit in the weeds. The the AFL and the NDP are not part of the same structure. They're affiliated with each other, so they're not like it's not like the same. Right. It's not like they have the same office kind of thing. Yeah. So so one of the things I mean this is this is all new territory for all the political parties. Going, this is the first election that we're that we're going to be under this under these new rules. All the parties are going to make some mistakes, I'm sure. One of the things that I think has been interesting, and this is an issue I raised back when the NDP first implemented this this new this new um, th- third party election advertiser law, is the the law or the the the, the deadline for for or so the the new rules basically implemented December first, 2018, under the assumption that the election is going to be called in the spring during our fixed election period. We don't we don't have fixed election dates. We have a period where between March 1st and May 31st the government is expected to call call the election. There, it, it seems to me and I've, I've looked at the legislation but it appears to be silent on what if the government decides to actually call the election in the fall. Does this third party election specific advertising laws, does that carry over until the fall? Does it carry over into like perpetually for until if the government wanted to run the clock and do their whole five-year mandate that, that they're allowed to under the Constitution? So that seems to be kind of an unanswered question. Um, but I think there's quite a few unanswered questions and it's going to be 
very interesting and it's probably not this is probably not going to be the last time actually i can i can assure our listeners this is not the last time we will talk about political action committees on this podcast and that's it for this episode thanks so much for tuning in we'd like to thank our producer adam rosenhart for helping us to put this episode together and a huge thanks to jamil giovanni for joining us on the pod it was great to have you man thanks for having me yeah man that was fun awesome and a huge thanks to the alberta podcast network powered by atb for supporting the show Visit albertapodcastnetwork.com to check out all the other Alberta Podcast Network shows. Send us your feedback or ask any questions you have for our next episode. You can get us on Twitter at at DaveBerta or on the DaveBerta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at DaveBerta.ca. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.